Hello, Happy New Year, everybody, and welcome back to The Conversation Weekly. This week, we're previewing some of the big things to watch out for in science in 2022. From new vaccine developments to space missions and robots, we talked to three experts about what they're looking forward to. There are a lot of groups working on pan-coronavirus vaccines or universal influenza vaccines. The European Space Agency ExoMars is going to be launched in September. Machine learning and AI will become more interactive or intuitive. And we take a look at trends in global inequality and whether it will be getting worse or better this year. The continuation of the pandemics will slow down their recovery that had already started in many countries. I'm Gemma Ware in London. I'm Dan Marino in San Francisco. You're listening to The Conversation Weekly, the world explained by experts. First up in our science preview for 2022 are vaccines, specifically the mRNA vaccines that have been used to protect many of us against COVID-19. Those are the Pfizer and Moderna ones, right? You got it. And these kinds of vaccines have been in the works for around 30 years, actually. But it's taken a while for scientists to perfect them. Luckily, technology was poised and basically ready to go when COVID-19 hit. It's the mRNA vaccines that have been used against COVID, but there are also DNA vaccines in development as well. Totally. And the best way to explain the difference between these two is to basically just look inside a cell. So DNA is the instructions that tell things what to do in your body made of nucleic acids. Your body turns DNA into mRNA. This is kind of an intermediary set of instructions, also made of nucleic acids. And then your body turns the mRNA into proteins. If those proteins produce an immune response, hey, you've got a vaccine. You can either inject it with DNA or mRNA. They both work. But COVID isn't the only thing these vaccines can tackle. And I called up a U.S. scientist who spent basically her whole career studying them to find out what's on the horizon. My name is Deborah Fuller. I'm a professor in the Department of Microbiology at the University of Washington School of Medicine. And my uh, area of research is in vaccines and more specifically nucleic acid vaccines, including RNA and DNA vaccines. So uh, over these you know, last couple decades, what were kind of some of the uses you and your colleagues in the field had imagined for mRNA vaccines? There were a lot of things we imagined them to be used for. From the very earliest conception, we conceptualize the possibility that these types of vaccines could be rapid response to emerging pandemics, whether that was a coronavirus or an influenza or an Ebola, something that could be very, very quickly made in response to something that was emerging. And that's simply because for RNA vaccines, all you need is the genetic sequence of the pathogen. Now, as we began to study nucleic acid vaccines, we discovered they were very effective in also inducing another type of immune response because most vaccines, they induce antibody. And antibody is a primary immune mechanism that blocks infections and protects us from them. But there's another type of immune response that RNA vaccines can induce just by the sheer capability of them being expressed within our cells. They can launch a very effective T cell response. And the discovery that they can do that really prompted additional thinking about how we could use this technology, not just for infectious diseases, but also for immunotherapy of chronic infectious diseases or cancers, uh, because we know that those T cell responses are very important 
for identifying either infected cells or aberrant cancer cells and eliminating them from our body. Walk me through how this works. How can a vaccine help me fight off cancer? What happens is that when a cell becomes a cancer cell, it starts producing what we call these uh, neoantigens. Basically, it's a new antigen that in normal cases, um, we would see that and we would eliminate that from our body. So often we have our cells sort of start to become cancerous, but our immune system recognizes that something's wrong with that cell and it will eliminate it. The reason why some people get tumors is because our immune system isn't quite capable of eliminating that. And so that tumor cell can propagate. And so what we try to do with an mRNA vaccine or a DNA vaccine is to try to correct that defect. In other words, what we want to do is make your body better able to recognize these neoantigens, these new antigens that the cancer cell has produced and is very specific to the cancer cells. And if we can make our immune system recognize and see that better, then we can attack those cancer cells with our immune system and eliminate them from our body. So it really isn't all that different from an infectious disease when you understand it, right? There's something that's not supposed to be there. You train your immune system to kill it, more or less. Yes, yes. We have borrowed a lot from cancer research in terms of uh, using vaccines for another uh, strategy very parallel to that, and that is the elimination of chronic infections like HIV, like hepatitis B, like herpes. These are viruses that infect our bodies, and they stay in our bodies. Uh, forever unless we can eliminate them. And as similar to training our immune system to eliminate cancer cell, we can use a lot of the same principles to use an mRNA vaccine to train our immune cells to recognize and eliminate uh, a chronically infected cell. Okay, we've got cancers, we've got chronic diseases. What about autoimmune disorders? Autoimmunity means that our immune cells, they're actually attacking ourselves. So a great example of that is muscular sclerosis, in which our own immune cells are attacking, you know, a, a protein in our muscles, and that's what's causing the disease. And so uh, there was a great paper published in Science where um, they took an mRNA vaccine and instead changed the code just enough so that the mRNA vaccine was able to express a protein that is uh, causes muscular sclerosis. This is in a, in a rodent model. And at the same time, change the code so the mRNA vaccine isn't able to stimulate these innate responses that it normally does. So what it ended up happening was that they found that instead of inducing immune responses that would attack that antigen, it instead stimulated a different type of immune cell called a T-regulatory cell. Now, T-regulatory cells in our body are types of immune cells that help to dampen an overactive immune response. And so they actually help to suppress the immune response against the self-protein. And by doing that, they can start to reverse the course of an autoimmune disorder by uh, sort of basically dampening that aberrant immune activation, yeah. Um, anything else that these vaccines are being used for or studied for right now? I think the last category of things that people are thinking about is one of the very first things that we thought about with DNA and RNA vaccines when we started to put them in the cells, the very first thing we thought about in the late 80s and early 90s was that maybe this could be used for gene therapy, replacing a missing gene. 
Um, and it turned out, though, that neither mRNA or DNA persists very long, nor does it integrate in our genome or change our genome in any way. So, uh, so that's, you know, one of the things that with gene therapy you're trying to accomplish to some extent. Um, but in later years, they began to thinking about what we have accomplished with these mRNA as well as DNA vaccines is the ability to express a protein for um, a longer period of time. Okay, so it can actually be produced for a while. So there are other sorts of genetic diseases like um, COPD, it's chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, it's genetic. And one of the things that is being thought of in terms of potentially um, treating uh, genetic diseases is you could potentially use an mRNA vaccine to transiently produce the missing gene, and that would alleviate the symptoms of this genetic disease, at least temporarily. But then you'd just get, you know, additional uh, doses to sustain uh, the therapy. So there is a, a number of groups that's actually looking uh, at that as, as a potential future therapy. So it won't cure you of that genetic disorder, but it rather just kind of substitute the missing protein, at least for a little bit. So Deborah, you've mentioned that vaccines could be used to treat chronic diseases uh, for cancers. A lot of stuff that people don't traditionally imagine a vaccine could be used for. What's kind of one of the furthest along clinical trials that uh, nucleic acid vaccines are being used for right now? Well, today there are a number of clinical trials ongoing with mRNA vaccines uh, for immunotherapy of cancer. And there has been some promising outcomes where they've seen uh, improvements in individuals who received an mRNA vaccine to uh, target uh, melanoma. There's other sorts of cancers like lymphoma, as well as uh, breast cancer. There's some uh, clinical trials ongoing right now. And there have been in the past clinical trials, some have been less successful just because the technology had not quite matured and been optimized to the state it is right now. But now that we've really solved a lot of the issues of uh, the technology, that has really opened up a lot more opportunities to go back in and say, hey, you know, again, the whole idea that these uh, types of vaccines can induce these killer T cells that can find aberrant uh, cancer cells in our body and eliminate them, there's a greater potential to realize that this might actually work. And so there's been a number of clinical trials uh, started, and Moderna's doing one. There's some in, in Brussels. There's a number of other uh, institutes that I know have initiated clinical trials uh, with mRNA vaccines for melanoma. But there's also a lot for DNA vaccines because DNA vaccines are very effective in inducing those T cell responses. I, I want to ask you about what's coming up in this next year, 2022. What are some of the results you're most looking forward to? Up next is flu. Flu vaccines, we've been using them over and over every year, but they really are are not optimal. I call them the shake and bake method. We just take the virus and we kill it and we inject that into people. And it works pretty well if it's an exact match to the flu virus. But flu viruses undergo much more rapid genetic variation than even the coronaviruses. And every year we are at risk for the possibility that that vaccine that year isn't going to be as effective against this year's virus. So, uh, if we can shorten the window of time between developing the vaccine and actually putting it out to people, which is what mRNA vaccines can do, then we can get a closer match to whatever's circulating at the time. So, And is that in the works right now? That is. That's already in clinical trials. Uh, that Moderna already has an influenza vaccine in clinical trials. I believe it's already gone into phase two. I think Pfizer uh, announced they have a, a flu vaccine in clinical trials as well. So I think our next mRNA vaccines are likely going to be uh, for 
influenza. So that's kind of in the short term. Longer term is uh, really the holy grail of vaccinology is this, is to actually come up with what we call a one and done vaccine. And this would be both for coronaviruses as well as influenza and any other highly variable virus. We could potentially in a single mRNA vaccine or DNA vaccine encode multiple different viral variants. And what that could result in is what we call a universal or pan vaccine. In other words, we're going to, in one shot, induce immune responses, not only against every variant that's circulating out there right now, but potential future variants to come. And so that's sort of on the horizon. There are a lot of groups working on pan coronavirus vaccines or universal influenza vaccines so that in the future, maybe five years from now, we won't be having to say, oh, you need an update. You need another flu vaccine, but you get one vaccine and it's going to protect you for years against anything that might emerge in the future. That sounds amazing. So, Deborah, what are you going to be working on in the coming year? So those are the things I'm working on right now is that universal flu vaccine, the pan-coronavirus vaccine. I'm also just working on both DNA and RNA vaccines. I'm a fan of both. And one of the things that we're trying to learn is what is the difference between RNA and DNA vaccines? Because they're not the same. A lot of people think that RNA is a sexier cousin of DNA, but they really work differently and they induce different types of immune responses. And ultimately, what we want to do is leverage the two uh, to the maximum benefit that we can get. Uh, for human health. Well, um, thanks so much for sharing your time and vast and awesome knowledge with us here. It's been a pleasure. Okay, thanks for having me. My pleasure. That was Deborah Fuller there from the University of Washington in the U.S. You can read more about mRNA vaccines on the Conversation website. Okay, Dan, next we're hopping from vaccines to outer space. Now, one of the most important things happening this year for astronomers is the arrival of the James Webb Space Telescope. That's right. It launched in late December successfully. And the next step is now to wait for the first images to come back once the huge telescope maneuvers itself into position and sets up all its sensors in a few months' time. And we talked to a couple of experts about the telescope back in December, so do scroll down in your podcast feed a little bit and listen back if you want to hear more. But there must be lots of other space missions getting ready in 2022, so what are we looking forward to? There are indeed a ton of new, exciting missions happening the next year. And I asked Monica Grady, a professor of planetary and space sciences at the Open University in Milton Keynes in England, what she's looking forward to. I'm looking forward to finding out some more from Perseverance. Confirmed. Perseverance safely on the surface of Mars, ready to begin seeking the sands of past life. So I hope we see some more samples being drilled out of the rocks from Perseverance. The other big Mars thing that's going to happen this year, of course, is um, the European Space Agency ExoMars is going to be launched in September. With Europe's first Mars rover, Rosalind Franklin, for the newest ExoMars mission. It's always a bit worrying when um, a space mission launches, so it'll be a relief to see ExoMars get off the ground, but then we'll have to wait until 2023 for it to actually arrive and start doing any any work. Sure, sure, sure. What else we got going on? Are, are there a ton of probes going up? Anything interesting going to asteroids? First of all, there's a mission called Psyche, which is going to be launching in August. And that's a, a NASA mission. And that's going to an asteroid called Psyche. The really special thing about this asteroid is that it's an M-class asteroid. It's made of metal. And we've never been close to an M-class asteroid before. And this sort of asteroid is the type of thing that is what's at the core of the Earth. Um, and of course, we've never 
seen the core of the Earth because it's too deep down. So when this gets there in a couple of years' time, it's going to be really, really interesting and give us a whole new idea of asteroid processes. So so that's something to look forward to. Now, not long after Psyche launches, the mission that was just launched to an asteroid um, arrives, and that's the DART mission. Three, two, one, and liftoff of the Falcon 9 and DART on NASA's first planetary defense test to intentionally crash into an asteroid. And that's going to asteroid Didymos and its moon or its binary partner Dimorphos. And the idea of, of DART is it's actually going to collide with the asteroid. And um, astronomers are sort of lined up to get images of the the moment of impact from ground-based telescopes. So they're going to actually crash into this asteroid? Well, yeah. I mean, the idea of DART is it's a technology testing mission um, and it's to um, save the Earth from an incoming asteroid. We don't want to be faced with devastation of the Earth because a huge great asteroid's coming towards us. What we need to be able to do is have enough time to uh, take remedial measures. And so the idea of DART is the second, the smaller of the two uh, asteroids, is going to move it in its orbit. So it's a little bit closer to Didymos, the main asteroid. Um, and the idea is then we can see how much momentum has changed. So what the energy is that's been delivered to the system to get the momentum changed so that we can sort of calculate, right, okay, so we've got this asteroid, which is so far away, and it's that big, and we actually need to be moving it by three centimeters in 10 years time, and then it'll miss the Earth. Okay, okay, so we've got our asteroid missions. Um, Anything in particular going to be going on in the moon that you're excited about? We've got Artemis, NASA's program of uh, human space exploration, going back to the moon. The the launch of humans to the moon is not going to be until 2024. But what's happening is, you know, they've got to start practicing, make sure the launch vehicle is good to go. Now, the last astronauts that were launched to the moon were launched on a Saturn V. Uh, and now they've got this thing called um, the Space Launch Systems. Liftoff. Artemis 1 will lift off from launch pad 39B at NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida with 8.8 million pounds of thrust provided by the most powerful rocket in the world, our Space Launch System rocket, or SLS. So what they're hoping is that the first of the space launch systems, uh, Artemis 1, will launch very soon. But what eventually is going to happen is there'll be um, a a capsule called the Orion capsule, which will be carried on this thing. um, And it won't go to the moon directly. It'll go to the Gateway, which is going to be another sort of international space station. But instead of being in orbit around the Earth, it'll be in orbit around the moon. So that's going to be being built. And then that'll be a, a waste station for astronauts who are then going to land on the moon and all sorts of things. So we've got a lot of exciting stuff coming from government space agencies, but what about the private sector? There's going to be tons of space tourism, I imagine. What's happening in the coming year? There's going to be a whole load more of that. I mean, we're seeing Jeff Bezos and his Blue Origin. Uh, He recently flew an astronaut's daughter. A new Shepard rocket blasted off the launch pad in Texas and returned just minutes later. Among those on board, the daughter of the man the spacecraft is named for, America's first man in space, astronaut Alan Shepard. And of course, um, Elon Musk and his SpaceX. 
Splashing down off the Florida coast, the trailblazing capsule carrying the first all-civilian crew to ever orbit the Earth. Inspiration 4, on behalf of SpaceX, welcome home to planet Earth. There you've got a whole load of issues. What's controlling it? is the thing you know say one of the spacecraft goes up and it explodes and it's got five people on board or it explodes over a city and a whole load of people are, are killed by falling debris or you know there's all sorts of issues of space law and space governance that we haven't yet i think fully fully articulated do you feel like this next year is Perhaps the first of the next era of space exploration for humanity. Once Artemis has really started, and that's 2024, that is a new era of astronauts going to the moon. You know, there will be Chinese astronauts going to the moon as well, not just orbiting the moon. Uh, So at the moment, it's just like we're still a little bit on hold. We're still building up towards it. Um, And I think in, in, in two years' time, Um, it'll be like, right, you know, let's power on. Let's for human space exploration. We're building towards that next Mm. era. We're perhaps Mm. in the baby steps going Mm. there, but we are headed there, you believe? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the idea a a few years ago that Americans will be back on the moon by 2024, it was laughable. It was just like, you know, they're not even interested. They're not even looking at it. But suddenly the accelerated pace of development has been phenomenal. Monica, what are you going to be working on? Fill us in on what 2022 is looking like for you. (laughs) 2022 is going to be a good year for me, I hope. Fingers crossed. Um, The last sort of year or so, I've been uh, involved in Mars sample return definitions and planetary protection definitions. And I'm rather hoping that's going to be going on as we build up towards um, sending another mission to Mars to bring samples back, which will be not till 2026. But also, I'm doing a lot of work on samples from asteroids. Uh, I'm hoping eventually to be working on the Ryugu samples and the Osiris Rex samples. We've got our beautiful British meteorite called Winchcombe, which fell in February, which has been really exciting to work on, and I'm continuing working on that. All right, Monica, um, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Monica Grady at Open University in the UK. Check out a story she just wrote for the conversation about what those samples from the Ryugo asteroid are already revealing. We'll put a link in the show notes. The third area of science we're looking at for the next year is robotics and all things automation. And for this one, I called up a robotics expert based in Sydney, Australia. I'm Teresa Vidal-Kaleja. I'm Associate Professor at the Robotics Institute in UTS, the University of Technology, Sydney. I'm also Deputy Head of School Research for the School of Mechanical and Mechatronics Engineering. I work in robotics perception. Robotics perception. What's that? It's about understanding the world from the sensors of a system or a robot uh, to help the robot to make intelligent decisions. So we look at combining the input of different sensors, let's say vision or uh, 3D lidars, microphone arrays, to understand the world so the robot can take decisions with the information. For instance, in manufacturing plants, the the current robots that are assembling cars, things like that, these are not what we call intelligent robots. They are not autonomous. They are pre-programmed to do a task. It picks up thing from here, screws it into thing there, over and over and over, exactly the same way every time. 
Exactly, and it puts it exactly in the same location. But once the environment changes a little bit, that's when we want the robots to adapt that become more intelligent if, in some sense. So for this, we need the perception side. We need to understand the environment, understand what's happening. For instance, we have to detect the exact position of a, an object to be able to grasp the object and then to put it in a different place. If we want something collaborative with a human, then obviously we need the perception side to understand what the human is doing and predict what the human wants the robot to do. For instance, robots delivering uh, food in our sidewalks, they need to learn how to cross the street, right? To predict where the car is going to pass and then cross the street, avoid all the pedestrians that are working with them. Harvesting robots. We want the robot to detect the fruit and pick it up from the tree, take it out and put it in the bag. Sure. And it, it needs to detect whether it's ripe or not. So can you explain to me where we're at in the field now? What are the capabilities of robotic perception? So vision is very good thanks to deep learning. We have very good algorithms to detect humans or human poses or even decide whether the human is happy or not happy. Right. But that doesn't give the whole information. Right? It, with a single image, we don't have enough geometry to detect the, the exact location of the human especially if we are moving in the environment, if, if, if the robot is not fixed in a, in a position, is moving around. A robot in the wild is still an open problem. It's not something we have solved yet. What are some of the most exciting advancements you're looking forward to or things that we might be on the cusp of in terms of detection and perception and then also on the kind of decision-making AI space? 2D perception based on images, so the deep learning based computer vision algorithms are very mature. And today we can use it for many, many applications. The 3D perception side, so working not only with images, but with other types of sensors, that still needs research. So that deep learning with 3D data, I think that's something that we will be looking more and more in the next year, more and more algorithms, more robust better accuracy. I mean, it's not only detection, right? Like uh, we call it detection and segmentation, where you can exactly get the shape of the object, where you could detect whether it's uh, in certain state or a different state. I don't know, a, a computer closed or open or things like that. Oh, sure, sure, sure. So we've got this kind of improvement in the 3D processing and perception. Um, what else are you excited about this year? I think that the fact that we're going to see more and more robots out there would also give us more data to play with. So we're going to see more robots harvesting our crops. Uh, there, there are some out there, but there will be more. And not only harvesting, doing uh, management, for instance, um, mapping the whole orchard. We'll see more robots inside infrastructure, right? Like robots inside pipes, in our water pipes, our gas pipes. Uh, there are already some, but we will see more and more. The technology is getting better and better. Uh, we will see robots in manufacturing, right? And not only in manufacturing, 
doing repetitive tasks with no perception, uh, robots collaborating, right? We call it cobots, robots working with humans uh, to achieve certain tasks. You work in a lot in collaborative robotics. Um, tell me what you're doing next year. Yeah, so I started a very exciting project. It's a Australian Research Council funding for a collaborative center for cobots for advanced manufacturing. And what we are trying is to help the manufacturing industry in Australia to use more robots that can collaborate with the human to achieve easily or more efficiently or in a safe way or a safer way the task that they need to do. So give me, give me an example here. Uh, welding. Welding. Well, welding is a, it's an excellent example because it's dangerous. You have to have very skilled operators for that. Depends on what you weld. If they are big plates or things that somebody can't carry... If a robot helps in this sense, for instance, a robot that can handle 200 kilograms payload, right? So the idea is that this robot uh, can hold the weight and the human can do the skill operation. You can imagine what, how many sensors we need to have yeah, there. Yeah. And it's not only detecting or sensing what is happening now. All our algorithms, especially for decision-making, require to predict the future. What's going to happen next? Do you think we're going to get any kind of real-time machine learning or AI or anything like that where it's interacting with the world? We have more machine learning and AI algorithms out there than, than you expect. <laughs> but I think it, it will become more... Um, interactive. More applications are, are coming at there in the VR sets. For instance, people are already training with VR sets or remotely controlling big mine trucks or excavators using augmented reality and virtual reality. And a lot of uh, the AI and machine learning algorithms are helping to make the tasks more intuitive and easy to digest for the people wearing the sets. Well, Teresa, uh, thank you so much. It's been really fun chatting with you and thinking about the future of robotics and robotic perception. Thank you for having me. It was, it's been fun. That was Teresa Vidal-Kalecha there at the University of Technology in Sydney, Australia. So from trends in science, we're shifting tack now to talk about money and how some people have a whole lot more of it than others. But is the world getting more or less unequal? And what lies in store this year for global inequality? To find out more, I called up an economist who's an expert on inequality. I'm Carlos Gradin. I work as a researcher at Unwider in Helsinki, Finland. So this is the World Institute for Development Economic Research, which is part of the United Nations University. I'm also on leave of absence as a professor of applied economics at the University of Vigo in Galicia, in the northern of Spain. So I work as an economist and my research is about inequality. For example, now I'm developing the world database on income inequality, the WEED. This database gives users information on the distribution of income in the world as a whole and as many countries as possible. So you're an inequality expert and we're talking to you to get a view of what might happen over the next year, couple of years in global inequality. So what's the state 
of global inequality at the start of 2022? Well, there is no doubt that the world is a very unequal place to live. So our latest estimates refer to 2019, but to a large extent can be extrapolated to 2021. So if we classify the world's population by income and we order people from poorest to richest in the world, the world's poorest 40% have only 6% of total income. On the other hand, the richest 10% have at least 45% according to our estimates that are rather conservative. So in some cases, the estimates point at 50 or even uh, more than 50%. So this implies that the richest 10% have at least seven times more income than the poorest 40% altogether. Uh, this situation is an example of a measure of inequality that we know as the Palma Index. No? But there are other measures, for example, the Gini Index, that gives you a, a value that goes between 0% when everybody has the same income in the world, to 100% when all the income goes to one single person and the rest, the 7.5 billion, have nothing. Well, the Gini index in the world is around 61%. This means that we are closer to the situation of maximum inequality than to uh, no inequality, than everybody having the same income. Mm. And what do we mean when we speak about global inequality? Yes, imagine for a minute that we remove all the borders in the world and we look at the living conditions of this huge uh, community of humans, regardless of the country where they live, the race they have, the religion, etc. And we observe how unequal this community is and how this inequality changes over time. But obviously, this is a fiction. The world actually has borders. And the country where we live actually determines our income on a very large scale. An important exercise then to understand inequality in the world is to identify what level of that global inequality takes place between countries and what inequality takes place among people living in the same country. So you've set out there that there's these kind of two main ways of looking at global inequality, the difference between countries and the difference between the people who live in those countries. Can you tell us a bit about how those two measures have tracked over the last couple of decades and to get us to the point where we are now? Yeah, so roughly speaking, we could say today about half of global inequality is due to inequalities between countries, while the other half is inequality within countries. But this share has dropped from about 65-70% decades ago being driven by inequalities between countries. So it's got better. Yes, <laughs> in terms of uh, the importance of inequalities between countries. So global inequality has been declining substantially since at least late 90s. For example, the Gini index that I mentioned that now is 61% was around 70% in the early 1990s. Why has this happened? Why has the 21st century seen a decline in that inequality? The main element to consider here is that global inequality was reduced because a reduction in inequality between countries. This is, to a large extent, the result of the success of China and, to a lesser extent, India in catching up in terms of per capita income with the rest of the world. We've seen extraordinary growth in China, also in other East Asian countries, and more recently also in the case of India. So these countries 
became the factory of the wall. And this allowed them to grow much faster than the rest. At the same time that this allowed the country to significantly reduce poverty, it also increased inequalities. For example, in, in the case of China, most of the economic growth, especially at the beginning, was concentrated in specific areas following the coast, while part of the inland were lagging behind the rest. So I know that you work with these large data sets that mainly look backwards at where inequality has been over the last couple of decades. But from that, you're also able to look forwards, aren't you, and and look at trends in the direction of travel. And that's what I want us to turn to now. So in 2022, what do you think the main factors will be in determining global inequality and what trends might we see? I would say that the main element that we have to consider for both inequality between countries and within countries is definitely the disruptions that we have seen in the economic activity caused by the pandemic in the last years and that unfortunately they will continue during this next year and we still don't know uh, until when they are going to be having these negative uh, effects. The continuation of this, of the pandemics, of the spread of the virus, the new variants, uh, etc., uh, will uh, slow down their recovery that had already started in, in many countries and will be affected during uh, the next year. Also, we have a lot of inequality in the effects of the pandemic in these initial moments because some countries were hit more badly than other countries. And also we see inequality in the responses that countries had to mitigate the effects of the pandemic because in some cases they have more resources to mobilize and transfer income to households and uh, businesses to uh, reduce the impact of the pandemic. In other cases, the countries don't have enough resources to do that or maybe they don't want for other reasons. No? But we will also see a lot of inequality in the recovery. Some projections indicate that, in general, advanced economies, they were affected the most, but they will also recover faster than low-income uh, countries. So was it all bad news during the pandemic or were there some good signs? One good thing of, uh, that we've seen during the pandemic is that even that there was a destruction of employment, a reduction of wages for those keeping their jobs, we've also seen a change in how governments deal with economic crisis. If we compare, for example, with the previous one, the financial crisis, I think we are now more aware that governments need to have the responsibility to keep income, provide income support to households, especially those that lost their jobs, but also to keep firms and companies working. And I think that's a good lesson that we have learned and that it worked quite well. In fact, thanks to this, the increase in inequality that we would have seen otherwise uh, is much smaller. There's a lot of evidence showing that the labor markets became more unequal during the pandemic. But at the same time, this has been mitigated to a very large extent by the increase in social policy. The problem is that we don't know for how long. So some of these transfers of income to households are temporary and there is the risk that they are withdrawn too soon and then we will see the real effects of the pandemic that could be tremendous. 
Okay, so that's that's one factor that the pandemic. What, what other factors are you looking at and you think will be important in, in the coming year? Well, I think also we are seeing now a raise in inflation. So uh, we are seeing prices going up, especially food prices and energy prices that disproportionately affect the poorest. So this can be really a, a very disruptive uh, change uh, during this year that also will have probably impacts on changes in the monetary policy. That is something that happens at the macro level, but might have impacts also uh, for households. No? For example, if those households, depending on credit to buy a house or to start a business, will see more difficulties if uh, the interest rates go up, for example, during this year, as a way that central banks use to reduce inflation. So the pandemic and then inflation, which I guess is caused by the pandemic or at least exacerbated by it. What else? Well, other factors related with the pandemic, again, is some reactions that we may see the next year and probably the, the, the following years in terms of protectionism. No? We've seen during the pandemic a lot of disruptions in the supply chain uh, and also dis disruptions in the demand of goods and services. We don't know how this is uh, going to work during the next year, but we could see also some reactions from countries in terms of protecting their economies by uh, making more difficult to poor countries to sell their goods and services to uh, richer countries. And this, again, can have a negative impact on the possibility of these countries to reduce the gap with uh, rich countries. Uh, also, we might see difficulties, for example, in terms of migration or in general labor mobility for permanent or for seasonal uh, works that large population share in developing countries, they depend on uh, migration to uh, make a living. But yeah, we are seeing some problems that we could expect that is going to be more difficult in the coming year and probably next years. So that that's what might happen in the next year. But longer term, what kind of trajectory do you think we're on? Is the world on a path to become even more unequal? Or could we see a kind of a... <laughs> a more optimistic future? Well, uh, I think to a large extent, it will depend on the capacity that the poorest areas in the world, sub-Saharan Africa or most of sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, have to catch up in terms of per capita income with the rest of the world. So we've seen significant progress in many countries like Ethiopia, no, Rwanda, um, etc. But we have seen also some countries like Burundi or Central African Republic that have seen no growth in the long term in the last decades. No, it, it probably, in my view, that's the main failure that the humanity had during the last decades. So I think what happens with inequality between countries in the next decades depends on what happens with these areas. Also because not only they are the poorest, but also the population is growing faster in this region. So they are becoming more and more important in terms of uh, population shares. No? We need to make sure that these countries find a path for development, no? that they can be integrated in international trade, producing goods that they sell to uh, other countries, that they can receive investments, that they can access education, technology, healthcare. Like, for example, in now uh, in the middle of the pandemic, what happens next year will depend a lot of 
to what extent these countries get access to good health care. In this case, the most urgent thing is access to the vaccination. So that's between countries. But what about the situation longer term for the inequalities within countries? In order for these inequalities to be reduced, you need some structural changes no? in, in terms of how people get their incomes. So you need that labor markets become more inclusive because most of the inequalities generated in the labor market. In some cases, then the government can change this a little bit, reducing inequalities using taxes and taxing richer people more and transferring income to the poorest or the middle class no? through social transfers in general, like pension benefits, unemployment benefits, etc. Okay. Thank you very much, Carlos, for sharing your insights with us and uh, good luck analysing the data as you keep going forward uh, this year. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Carlos Gradin there at the United Nations University. This week also marks the one-year anniversary of the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. So to mark that, we've got some recommended reading from Naomi Shalit. This is Naomi Shalit, and I'm the senior politics editor at The Conversation, based in Boston. This week marks the first anniversary of the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C., The rioters believed Joe Biden had stolen the election from Donald Trump. Political scientist James Piazza of Penn State writes that, Now, one year after the insurrection, there's danger ahead. Acceptance of electoral defeat, he says, is essential to democratic stability. But the widespread false belief in election fraud, stoked by Trump himself, could lead to political violence again. Journalism scholar Amanda Crawford from the University of Connecticut also tackles political violence in the U.S. She writes about a poll conducted way back in 2013 that had a result so surprising that it was dismissed by prominent political observers as too far-fetched to be true. The poll's finding? That nearly one-third of Americans surveyed and a whopping 44% of Republicans said that armed rebellion might soon be necessary in the U.S. to protect liberties. In retrospect, the poll seems prescient. Naomi Shalit there in Boston. That's it for this week. Thanks to all the academics who've spoken to us for this episode. And thank you to the conversation editors, Noor Galani, Nahal Al-Hadi, Jonathan Est, Stephen Khan, and to Alice Mason for our social media promotion. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us podcast at theconversation.com. And don't forget to sign up for our free daily email. There's a link in the show notes. If you're enjoying The Conversation Weekly, please leave a rating or review wherever podcast apps allow you to. And if you listen to us on Spotify, they've just added the ability to rate podcasts on that app. So please give it a try. And please tell your friends, family, and hey, maybe a neighbor about the show too. The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend Marawani and me, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Our theme music is by Nita Sal. I'm Dan Reno. Thank you all very much for listening.